on the on the final day in in the in the Bible it says in in um, uh, John chapter seven and verse thirty eight and it's probably good for us to look at that in John the book of John uh, which is in the Bible I have to say that to my students you know because they don't know that there's a book of John in the Bible um, chapter seven John chapter seven. Um, and I have to say it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You don't have to do that at Trinity because different kinds of students come to Trinity. At North Park, students come who have never seen a Bible in their whole life. And so uh, I give them a test, and the only thing they know is Adam and Eve. I don't know whether they hear about Adam and Eve. But John chapter, then I have to say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John chapter 7 um, and verse 38, if you, if you look at the text there, it, it talks about um, something happening. This happens at the Feast of Tabernacles. It happens at this thing called Tabernacles. If you, if you go into a Jewish home, uh, t- a tabernacle is a flimsy structure that is built outside houses. And the whole idea is that's life. Life is a flimsy structure. A little bit of wind and it'll fall apart. And we need to be thinking about this because um, there, there's a hurricane that's, um, that's slamming places like the Bahamas and it'll be coming into the Carolinas um, and people are in harm's way. So I would encourage us to think about these things because all is related to water. Water can have that kind of destruction Water, if it's not there in deserts, can have uh, the opposite effect. So bad things happen to women. So right in the midst of this, while people are coming from different parts of wilderness experiences, they come to Jerusalem, Jesus stands up on the last day, which in, on this year is going to be October uh, the 19th, and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. And that's what Project Blue is all about. In the name of Jesus, it's enabling people to to find physical salvation, to find emotional salvation, to find salvation from awful things that they they experience, but primarily spiritual salvation. Uh, because they came there looking for the meaning of life. That's what Tabernacles is all about. What is life all about? That's the question that they're asking, because they come from places where bad things have happened to them. And that is, is, is what we would be, in many senses, going into in a new series. In a new series, uh, which we are calling... Running the marathon of life. Running the marathon of life. Because in some senses, we come to this new land. Our forebearers came to this new land asking questions. They had questions in their own land, whether it be mainland China or it be uh, Seoul, Korea, or it be some other part of Korea, or it be Kotayam, or it be wherever our forebearers came from. They were asking 
this question, what is life? Why is it that I encountered bad things in this place that I come from and then I come into this new land and I encounter another set of issues? What is? What is the meaning of life? I want to read to you this uh, news article that I read yesterday uh, and it's found in this newspaper. I, I, you know, I try to read New York Times, Chicago Tribune. I don't know where do I find the time to do that, but I do it. Um, I, I read The Guardian. I read uh, The Times and from London. I try to read BBC. So here's a, an article that I found in The Guardian newspaper, yesterday's newspaper. And it's an article written by uh, a, a, a professor who teaches at the University of Michigan, uh, and she's written a novel called Number One Chinese Restaurant. So isn't that intriguing? It's just come through. It's, it's just, it's, I don't think it's published yet. Uh, I have to look at that. Her name is Lillian Lee. Have you read any of her material? Lillian Lee, and it's called Number One Chinese Restaurant. And here's what she writes in this article. So let me read this. Uh, talking about the meaning of life, right? What's the meaning of life? And so she is trying to discover this, trying to answer this question. And, and, and here's what it says. So let me just do some reading from this article. She says, customers looked right through me. What I learned working in a Chinese restaurant is the title of, of this article. You're too soft. We raised you too soft, said her mother and her father. You need to build confidence, young woman. You need to build power. You need to become powerful like those people. You need to run in this world. Be bold, be strong. Develop some muscle, woman. So I spent an exhausting, demoralizing summer waiting tables at a Chinese restaurant, she says. My mother had worked in a Chinese restaurant when she first moved to the United States and felt that her experience had toughened her up. When she remembered how wimpy she used to be, her blood pressure would rise I made your dad fly from Colorado to Los Angeles to pick me up from the airport. We were dead broke for months because I couldn't handle a simple connecting flight. This, by the way, says Lillian Lee, not only the flight that had delivered her from Beijing to the U.S., but also the first flight, the very first flight, Shed that she'd been on. So that summer, after college, I got a job waiting tables at Peking Duck Restaurant just outside of Washington, D.C., she says. The place was incredibly popular, not with Chinese people, but their suburban neighbors. Does that sound familiar? The place was incredibly popular. Um, and then she goes on to say, incredibly popular, not with Chinese people, but their suburban neighbors. It specialized in Peking duck, 
which was carved table side and then wrapped by the waiting staff, but also served a mix of northern Chinese and Americanized Chinese food. When, when asked if I could start the next morning, I said yes, yes without hesitation. I wanted to be tough like my mother, a woman who had started her own business in her 40s and who regularly scolded her clients until they apologized to her. The manager gave me a blazer to wear and told me to buy a clip-on bow tie, a clip-on bow tie, <laughs> and non-slip shoes, so that's what she did. I soon realized that my desire to be tough was fueled largely by delusion that I already was. While I was still in training, I overloaded my tray with drinks, ignoring the bartender's warnings. I managed to wobble the tray over the table and hand over two drinks like a pro. Then I promptly dropped the third drink down a customer's neck. He leapt up as though a scorpion had crawled down his shirt. My trainer apologized for me and chewed me away. After 12-hour 12 12 shifts, I would drink, drive back to my parents' house where I was staying for the summer. I would come in through the garage door as stained and crumpled as the tips in my, tips in my pocket, and my mother would be waiting in her pajamas. While I counted my tips in bed, she would force me to talk about my day. For the first few minutes, I would feel too tired to string a sentence together, but invariably, you know how it is, right? Once I remembered a slight from a customer or a nasty comment from the manager, I had energy to burn, and to my surprise, my mother had her own stories to add to the pile. Stories I had not heard before that gave me an idea of what she was like at my age and what she had gone through in life. When the head cook yelled at me for messing up an order, my mother told me that the cooks had a restaurant, did awful things to her. And so she goes on to that, to describe that. And then so the stories go on and on and on. This is a long story. I would encourage you to read it. It's so powerful, written by someone who really knows how to write in English. And I would encourage you to get this book also. But what does it mean? What, is it, what does life mean? What does life mean to immigrants? What does life mean to people who left their land? And what does life mean to second generation of people? What, what is life all about? Does it mean to toughen up? Who do I toughen up like? Who is the idea of being tough? That I need to somehow emulate or copy what is life all about? That is the journey that we will be taking, beginning with Hebrews chapter 12. I want to start today with Hebrews chapter 12 and then talk about this idea of the meaning of life, running the marathon of life. But before we do that, and before we read through these one, first two verses of Hebrews chapter 
12. I want to also give you a couple of motifs that is there in, 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 in other uh, avenues that I have studied. One is uh, this, this Eastern perspective on what, what life is all about. What is, what is life all about? If you read it in Buddhist literature, in Hindu literature, in Jain literature, in Sikh literature, here's how it is. The first stage of life which is your stage in life, is the stage of waiting. You study, study, study. So all the parents say, study, 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 right? That's all you hear. Have you done your homework? Have you done blah, 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 blah? Study, study, study. That's the age of waiting. The second stage in life is the stage of working. So you work, 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 work in Chinese restaurant, wherever else you go. That's the second stage in life. The third stage in life usually happens around when you are 60 years old, then that's a stage of wisdom. And then you impart wisdom to your children, to your grandchildren. You say, look, this is what I did when I worked in a Chinese restaurant. And, and this is how these are the lessons I learned. That's the stage of wisdom. And then there's the fourth stage. I don't know when does it happen, but that's the state of waving, waving where you're handing over to the next generation. You impart wisdom, but now you're ready to depart to heaven, and so you hand over. So that's the four stages of life. Um, which kind of goes along with four stages of marathon running that I will go through? The first stage is what I call the stage of, it's the uphill stage of of rising. First seven miles, you're like going up and you know your heartbeat is, is going up and you're so, you don't know if you're going to make it. And, uh, 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 but then you, thankfully, you come to the second stage and that's the stage of what I call the resting stage. Your heartbeat comes to a resting heartbeat and you say, I can run this forever now. And you go around like this. Usually it happens after you've crossed uh, in Chicago Marathon. You, you've crossed uh, Moody Church by then. Till you're going, till you're reaching Moody Church, you're like uphill. After that, you're a resting stage. And then you come to the next seven miles. That, that's what I call the deep resting stage. You see the parallels there with the stages of life? Deep resting stage. Then you reach the 21st mile and you say, Oh, cramps, I can't do this anymore. You're brain dead. And that's when you reach this place where you come to Chinatown now. When you come to Chinatown, then you don't see any people. Everyone's disappeared. No spectators, no one there to tell you you're doing well, run along. All you see is those highways intersecting with each other, and you see Chinatown in distance, and you say, I cannot do this. But thankfully, people appear again. And then it's the fourth stage, which I call uh, the final stage, the rising again stage, where Chinatown appears. There's this nice people that, you know, dress up like clowns and all that, and they'll dance around you. And, and you say, I can do this, I can do this. And then you rest, run the rest of your race after that, and you encourage each other. And... It's really nice, really nice. So those are the four stages of the marathon journey, which also then equates with four stages of what happens when you go to college. Are you ready for this? The first stage is what I call the stage of uprooting. 
So that's what your son experienced when he went to college there. He was uprooted from here and you plonked him there and you said your goodbyes and tearfully you went away and you were bawling. You remember that? Except for Joe. I don't know about Joe. <laughs> you know, so you, um, you leave them. It's a stage of uprooting. And then that's the first year. The second year is the stage of rooting. Rooting, and all the courses are designed to do that. The third stage is deep rooting, whatever your major is. And then the fourth stage is when you're getting ready to, ready to say goodbye to the, the college student. That's re-rooting, re-rooting. So there are those four stages in, in, in all of life, and perhaps we will encounter some of these as we go along. I do like to see life as a marathon journey. And so let's see what we can learn from these two verses here. So are you ready to read some of this? Would you arise and read with me Hebrews chapter 12? Hebrews chapter 12. Isn't it great that you can run with Jesus? Jesus is a runner, Emily. That's why we run. All right, let's read this. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw away everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Amen. So, Lord, we pray that as we meditate on this text, you would enable us to learn how to run this marathon journey of life. Looking at you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So would you be seated and, and tell me, what, what have you learned in these two verses of, what, what, what are some of the observations that you make from, from, what we have, um, what, from what we have read in the text? It's a marathon. I know some of us are runners, some of us are not runners, uh, some of us are, but you do, do other stuff, right, which is similar to running. So what have you learned? What do you think? Young people that are sitting right up here in front of me. I was telling them that when I was teaching, for some reason, my daughters, they would come and sit right up front. And they would stare at me. And then they, would, they wouldn't know what to call me. They can't call me professor. They can't call me dad. They would just put up their hand and ask me questions. And I would look at them and I would say, no, no, don't ask me questions. It'll be the toughest question that they'll ask. So thankfully, they're not students anymore. I'm so thankful for that. But what about you all? Uh, run, with run with endurance. So building endurance is important, right? Endurance, endurance. Endurance is so very important, so very important. You know why is it important? So, so I, I talk about running all the time, in my classes also. I think every second sentence is running. So there's a student after the Chicago Marathon who texted me and said, I ran the Chicago Marathon. And I said, I thought to myself, 
but Tom, you didn't even tell me you were going to run the Chicago Marathon. How is it that you ran the Chicago Marathon? Here's how it, ha it happened. When he got up in the morning on that October 11th or whatever it was, he decided to put on his shoes and, shoes and go and run the marathon. He hadn't registered for the marathon. He hadn't trained for the marathon. Nothing. So in the afternoon on Sunday, I get a text. I think, no, it was, I think it was 5 p.m. or something. I did the Chicago Marathon. And I said, Tom, you ran the marathon? Do you think I saw a marathon for the rest? I saw, well, not marathon. Do you think I saw Tom for the rest of the semester? No. No. He was done. He had, I don't know, all sorts of illnesses came to visit him after that. All because he didn't build up an endurance. Perseverance. Endurance. Patience. You can't just get up in the morning and go run a marathon. The guy, I don't think he finished that semester. Not just my class, no classes he finished after that. He was done. All because he decided to go run a marathon. So you're right. Endurance. What else? Oh, therefore. Therefore is very important, right? Therefore is a very important word in the Bible. Oh, witnesses. Therefore, witnesses surrounded by... Witnesses. You know, witnesses is not a good translation. I say this all the time, right? Uh, about the, because it's, in, it's translated into English, and English is a bad language. Um, um, actually, these are fellow runners. These are not just witnesses. Here's the problem that I have with sports. What's the problem? I have with sports, there are, and that's, one, that's the reason why I'm a runner. You know, people go and watch these bears who are going to do horribly again this year. I'm sorry to say that. Oh. <laughs> no, they'll do well. But what is it with how many people go and watch a bears game? How many? For each, for each game, yes, yes. 60,000? They're not doing anything. All they're doing is... It's those 12 people that are doing stuff there, right? They're all witnesses. They're all lookers. And they're getting heart attacks without doing anything. <laughs> so uh, that is not... A, that's not what marathon is all about. These are fellow runners. They're not just witnesses. It's almost like Noah and Abraham and David and Moses are running with us. And they're saying, you go, guy. Come on, you can do it. I did it. You can do it. That is what we need to keep in mind. So, yes, witnesses, but these are active witnesses. They're not passive witnesses like we have in Bears stadiums or in... Bulls, there used to be a team called Bulls, right, in the 90s. They don't exist anymore. Um, so, um, what else? Someone else there? From this text? Fixing our eyes, our eyes on Jesus. Oh, fixing eyes. Fix. 
fixing, seeing, seeing uh, Jesus. And, and Jesus is like a pace setter, pace setter. You know, if you run a marathon, you, you have these people who are called pace setters. Have you seen them? They hold a sign and it says, I'm going to finish in three hours, I'm going to finish in three hours, five minutes, I'm going to finish in three hours, ten minutes, I'm going to finish in four hours. And you, you all, you're always looking at the pace setter. You have to fix your eyes on the pace setter because that is your goal. So usually when I would run a marathon, if I want to finish it in three and a half hours, I'll go and run with the person who's going to finish it in three hours, 15 minutes or something. And then, you know, I'll keep up with the person for a while and then I know I cannot keep up. And slowly I'll slide back to three hours, 20, three hours, 25. And then, you know, three hours, 30 would work out. But you always were run with, a pay, you're always looking at the pace setter. And I would try to go alongside them and talk with them. And they're good about talking with you. They tell you you're running right. You know, your foot is doing the right thing or it's doing the wrong thing. You're going to break your knees. Don't do that. They're really good people. They'll tell you stuff. So that is how Jesus is. He's the pace setter. Look at Jesus. He's the pace setter. As long as you can see him, you'll be okay. Now, there's another thing that we need to remember. It's about seeing. Seeing in the Bible is a very crucial thing. There are two words that I use there, and both sound the same. It is yira, yira. You, it means to see. Keep your eyes. Keep your eyes on, on, on God. Keep your eyes on Jesus. It's, it's very similar to... Um, there's a guy by the name of Abraham in the Old Testament, you remember? And it says constantly the word that's used is, he saw, he saw, he saw. Because when he saw, then you also, yira, you fear the Lord. Seeing and fearing go together. Seeing and fearing are similar words in the Hebrew language. When you see, then you also fear, which is true of a marathon. We need to be mindful of the fact that a marathon is a marathon. We need to worry about it, not like my student Tom who went and ran the marathon and thought he conquered the world, but he really didn't, right? If you don't finish the semester, what have you done? And um, I won't tell you the rest of Tom's story. There's, there's more to it. Um, but when you see... You also fear, but when you fear, it also says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, knowledge. You learn to live the journey of life called the marathon. So, when you look at Jesus, you also fear when you fear, then you're also sustained in that fear and you learn how to learn, how to run the journey of life. Um, so here are some of the lessons and very quickly I'll go through some of these. Um, the first thing that we need to do is to take a deep, deep breath. Okay, take a deep breath. 
others have learned, have run this journey of life. Right from the beginning of time. And we'll be going through some of those during these series. But we need to take a deep breath. I am not the first marathon runner. There have been others. Which is a humbling thing, right? We are not trailblazers. If we think we are the first one to do anything, forget about it. There's nothing new under the sun. Everyone else has done it. We can look at those people. And that's a humbling thing. It's a very humbling thing. Take a deep breath. You and I are not the first. The second lesson is that we need to shed all our stuff. Shed all your stuff. You cannot run a marathon being loaded by all kinds of things. So, the first marathon that I ran, um, I had this jacket on, which was an expensive jacket that was given to me by my wife. And it was really early in the morning, and it was cold. But I reached the third mile and the fourth mile, and I said, I can't do this. I can't run with this jacket. Right? And then I said, I'm going to listen to nice Robin Mark music. So I had this thing. It used to be called a Walkman. I don't know if they have those anymore. Right? I had this Walkman thing, and it was really heavy. Sony Walkman, if you remember that. I don't know. And then it, I had this in my... And I said, I can't do this. It keeps falling off, and I'm holding it in my hand. And then I said, I need to hydrate myself. So my wife had given me this expensive bottle. I was carrying that in one hand. I was carrying Walkman in the other hand, and my jacket. And I had to take it off, so I had to roll down my jacket here. And I'm, you know, I was quite a clown. I'm running. And you cannot run like that. So I went by. Moody Church, and there were a group of people there, and I said, these people look like good people because they're from Moody Church, you know. So I decided to hand it over to one of the ladies. Would you keep this for me, please? She didn't know who I was. I don't know who she was. It so worked out that she was uh, Urban Lutzer's uh, secretary, so it worked out well. But I didn't know who she was, but I had to shed everything. You cannot run with stuff. We have to shed the stuff. It'll be okay. We carry all this stuff on our lives because we think we cannot do without it. And, and, and that is what happens with, with stuff that the baggage that we carry from the time we are little kids. What this text says is get rid of it. And of course, there is the seven deadly sins. You know, there is... Lust, we don't think we can do without it. We don't think we can do without food. So there's gluttony. You know, I don't know why do we think we're not going to be eating at all. So we want to eat everything right now. And, and so there is gluttony. There is greed. I want wealth. And, and we, we hoard it. You know, we find places to hoard it. If it's not in our room, then we find the basement. If it's not the basement, then it's the garage. If it's not the garage, then society has provided these nifty places called uh, uh, where storage spaces. You know, it's so easy to storage space here, and we gather five of those, and because we can't get rid of stuff. And that's what we do in life. 
And there's anger and there's envy. You know, for some reason, we get so angry because we want to get to work. And here is this grandma who's driving the speed limit. And I'm behind this grandma. And I say, I can't do this. And, and we get so heated up and we get so angry. And our blood pressure goes up. And we do awful stuff when we reach work. So there's pride. There's envy. The Bible says, get rid of all that stuff. Develop patience, endurance, perseverance. The fourth lesson is that there is a race that's marked out for us. And that's important. There are rules. There is the Ten Commandments. The Bible has got ethos that we need to go by. There is... There's a way of doing stuff. Do you know that in, in the Chicago Marathon or any marathon, you have to wear a computer chip? It kind of tells you, you know, how, where you're reached, and it's all there on the computer. Um, uh, do you know why did it come about? Well, there was a, a lady by the name of um, Rosie Ruiz in 1979, she ran the New York Marathon, and her distance, her time was uh, uh, two hours and 56 minutes. And she got, the, she got the prize. She was the best runner. And then that, the next year, she ran in 1980, she ran the Boston Marathon. And this time, she was uh, number 11, and her time was two hours and 31 minutes of all the runners. And they gave her the award, my goodness. But then they said, what? She shaved off so much time in a matter of six months, something is wrong. So do you know what they discover? She didn't run the race. She started. She probably got into someone's car. And then she reached. That's why we have chips. We have chips now because it's timed. Every time you cross five miles, you are timed there, and that is the race that's marked out for us. We need to run by the ethos that is there in the Bible. Do you know another thing? It says it's marked out for all of us. We need to run together. That's one of the things I like, like about running a marathon is you, you run together with people. You hear their stories. You run why you get to know why they are running. You, you get to know what happened in their lives, and they'll encourage you. My first marathon again, so I'm telling you all these stories. I look down, 21st mile, no one's there, pitter-patter, and I look down, and my computer chip is not there. So I'm so dejected, and I look at this person running next to me. It was a lady. Uh, who, I said, my computer chip, my computer chip. She says, what happened? She, I said, it's not there. And so she looks at me, and she says, look at me. And I said, yes, I'm looking at you. <laughs> she says, don't worry. The race has been won already. <laughs> Isn't that cool? And so I kept running. <laughs> I kept running. We encourage each other. That's what life is all about. And that's what it is in the church. We encourage each other in this journey called life. And sometimes we have to say things like, don't worry, it's been run already. <laughs> right? Don't be silly. Don't be stupid because we do stupid stuff. 
So we are together. We need to hold each other accountable. And then we need to learn the painful lessons of life because running a marathon is painful. Life has got pain. We need to come alongside each other in those moments of pain. That's what church is all about. When we come alongside each other and say, yes, I know, but I'm going to be there with you in that pain. But finally, we look at Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the shame. Do you know that Jesus was naked when he was crucified? That's what they used to do to people they crucified. We have in pictures these nice things that cover up Jesus, but that's not what they did. They wanted to shame the person. And they shamed the person to the uttermost, just like they did in the South, in the antebellum South, here in the United States. He endured the shame because he wanted to save us. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So let's run this life's journey because our pace setter, Jesus, endured everything we can ever, ever think of. And there'll be a time when he will look at us and he will say, well done. You've run the race. And here you are. This is the crown of glory because you ran this journey with all those co-runners. And you looked at me, the pace setter. That is the beauty of running with Jesus. Let's pray.